Hey, what's up? Yeah, this is Madam Butterfly, and you are listening to Frequency Bay. Thank you so much for joining me with another episode this evening. And uh, the topic for this episode is going to be um, horror movies and cinema and the psychology surrounding all of it. Um, so what I have here today is a an interview. And then followed with the interview will be a TED Talk uh, in relationship to that um, topic. Uh, so first, we, we have an interview here um, that looks like it, it took place at, at a conference and or institute. Um, an institute. And um, I believe that an individual by the name of, well, the individual whose page this is, Ben Farmer Jr., um, I guess asked some questions and gets get some pretty insightful answers. Uh, this will be the first time that I'll be watching either of these videos. So, um, yeah, I think it, it'll be a good, a good discussion. So I will go ahead and um drop right in here get right into it my name is ben fama jr i'm a student documentary filmmaker i'm making a film called a uh, virus called fear and briefly i was wondering if you could give me an input on how we went from having rational fear to like i could eat my tigers and bears and how we went to rational fears of like politics and Okay, um, that's a very interesting thought. I know what this is. This is a uh, a documentary. This was an interview, but it's actually a documentary. Uh, I apologize. <laughs> Never mind. Um, this may or may not be a clip that I ran into uh, a couple years ago when COVID nineteen first came on the scene. Um, if anybody that knows me, they know that when COVID nineteen Originally started, I had a completely different outlook and ideology in, asso- in, as- in so- association with uh, COVID-19. Um, I was really anti-vaccine and uh, anti the idea of um, even being in a hospital. Uh, since then, it's been about a year or two and I've done a complete 380 or 360 rather. Um <laughs> And uh, yeah, I kind of just I changed my mind because I started to take the time to actual to actually you know what it was um, 
So I started to question my surroundings and I started to question why things were the way they were and I wasn't getting the answers that I uh, were sufficient enough for me. So I decided to go talk to some doctors and um, yeah, I got what I was looking for. Anyway, let me get back to this this documentary. Psychologists and researchers believe that fear is an innate emotion. It's believed that we are born with the ability to be afraid because it's a survival mechanism. If we did not have fear, we would not then get into um, a reaction to fear, which is something that is within us to survive, to be able to properly prepare ourselves for anything that could get into us. Fear is a survival mechanism, certainly. Fear has adaptive qualities for us over time. We needed to be afraid of things in order to survive. So the basic fears like fear of lightning, fear of fire, fear of heights, fear of danger, fear of the saber tooth tiger, all of those were quite functional for us. And then over time, when there was not that need to be afraid of those things because we were living in more industrialized societies, we seemed to be afraid of fear would be a very valuable biological mechanism because our ancestors would have lived perilous lives. They'd have, they'd have been frightened yes. of predators, lions, saber-tooths, um, leopards, not saber-tooths, um, uh, and leopards, um, they would have had, um, uh, disease would have swooped without warning, without explanation, um, so they would naturally have um, try to think of ways to avoid these terrible dangers. Uh, in the case of, of disease, which, which before modern science was completely unpredictable, unknowable, uh, one would naturally fall into superstitious habits. Um, these, are, these are superstitious responses and when you're living in a world of, of ignorance. So it's not surprising that people will go to incredible lengths to survive. Think back to, you know, caveman days, hearing noises, fear for your life, are you in danger of any kind? But there are fears that are actually just natural, innate, um, that are there to kick in the fight or flight response so that we are on guard. We're prepared for something that may be something we need to either avoid, something we need to get away from, escape from, in order to keep ourselves alive, keep ourselves safe. If that type of an innate fear is going to be very different from fears that are learned, our survival fears, you know, when you look at evolutionary psychology, what we needed to be afraid of in order to survive. And I can't say that that's had adaptive qualities, but a sociologist would probably say that it's been functional. It sounds a little bit odd to think that fear could be functional, but in actuality, if you look at in-groups and out-groups in society, the us versus them, it's actually quite functional to be afraid of them. There's certainly a lot of fears that it is believed are learned along the way or um, conditioned, depending on the, the school of psychology that you believe. Um, but then there's also a lot, of, a lot of research to show that there are innate fears that we are born with that are there to protect us, that we need those natural reactions in order to be prepared, be on guard, and survive threats. Watson wanted to look at, could someone learn to be afraid of something? 
you had this young boy, this little boy, who had no fear of rats. He would sit with this white rat, he would pet him, he would play with him. There was no indication that there was any issue whatsoever. And Watson set out to create a situation where little Albert would grow to be afraid of the rat. So what he started to do was associated every time Albert went to reach for the rat, a very loud noise, so loud that it would make little Albert jump. And he kept, any time little Albert went to uh, touch the rat, let the rat sit in his lap, for example, any kind of contact whatsoever, little Albert would hear this loud noise. And it got to the point where little Albert became afraid to go anywhere near the rat, because at that point, the virtually automatic reaction that he had learned was associating the loud, scary sound with interacting with the rat. The attitudes that children learn in the family, that starts as soon as they begin understanding their parents. And I mean, it's not just what they say, but children pick up on facial expressions. They pick up on energy before they can even communicate. So that emotional, um, they can be quite sensitive to just anxiety in the air. At very young age, you grow up in a household that is unsafe, where you feel it's not stable, not constant, not consistent. You are definitely prone to see the world as a more fearful place. If there's a lot of volatility, it, it's, it goes back to another theory, <laughs> um, Eric Erickson's theory. It's a lifelong developmental theory, but the very first psychosocial crisis is trust versus mistrust. And, it, and he theorized that it happens in the first year of life, and if you don't gain the sense of trust in your world, when you're hungry, someone's going to be there, when you're crying, someone's going to comfort you, then you'll resolve that on the continuum of mistrust. And what that means is that that's the lens through which you're going to view your world. So there's certainly genetic or uh, nature aspects where you can see patterns in family, personality traits that get passed along from family to family. If you are born into a family where you see, for example, your father beating your mother, a logical part of you knows that that's not okay. So even though you know it's not okay, this is what you have learned by observation. Getting back to behavioral psychology, this is what you've learned by observation is the way I deal with my anger. And the hard part for a lot of people is, when are you taught something else? governed by fear, you could very well make up um, superstitions like pigeons do it in, in Skinner boxes. Skinner himself uh, had, did a very interesting experiment in which he put pigeons in a Skinner, you know Skinner box is a, a cage in which if a pigeon does something like peck a pea, it gets a, re a reward. Pigeons readily learn to do that. I will try to pick out some particular pattern of behavior and uh, make it uh, more a more frequent part of the repertoire of the bird. Meantime, the bird is, uh, has been uh, already conditioned to eat when the, when the magazine sounds and the light flashes. When it came to Skinner's work, what Skinner wanted to look at was could you use twofold rewards and punishments? 
Whereas if you introduce something positive, like to a, a pigeon a food pellet, it would encourage the pigeon to keep pecking at the lever to get more food and thus continue pecking and continue pecking. So you get, get a behavior increase and with Kajabi, it's easy to take the knowledge you already have and turn it into a profitable online course. Check it out. Not doing anything in particular, you see. But I'm going to try to get it to do something. Suppose I shape up the behavior of making a complete turn. He came back after a few hours and saw half a dozen pigeons under this regime. One pigeon would be feeding under its left wing, another would be turning round in circles, um, another would be scratching the ground, another would be wiping its head on the ground. Each, each pigeon had superstitiously done something, accidentally been rewarded because that's when the mechanism produced the, 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 the food and carried on doing it. And so each pigeon became a kind of maniac for doing a particular, um, a particular ritual which is exactly like one tribe sacrifices a goat in order to make the rains come. Another tribe um, gets down on its knees and faces Mecca and prays five times a day away. E each tribe develops its own superstition in order to get rewarded and, of course, in order to avoid being punished, in order to avoid um, the fearful consequences of, of, of random events which they had no, uh, no um, control over. Because it's believed that for a lot of people, religion is something that people find comforting because, for example, a fear of death. Well, if there's this wonderful afterlife, I'm going to go to heaven and there's going to be all my family there, it's suddenly not so bad. So it's believed that for a lot of people, religion has become um, a societal way of coping with anxieties. If you believe the way we do, then yes, you're going to come back as a more evolved being. You're going to go to heaven. You're going to have your own planet. You're going to have, you know, 40 virgins or something in your afterlife. But if you don't, then it's going to be eternal hell and damnation. something that our brain tells us is a true threat. At that point, then, the hypothalamus, the amygdala, both kick in. The amygdala actually triggers the hypothalamus. Chemical reactions, adrenaline, cortisol are all released in the brain, which then actually release an automatic physiological response that includes things like your heart rate picking up, uh, your breathing capacity, blood actually rushes from your digestive tract out through your external limbs to get your muscles ready. Your senses actually increase and become more aware, such as hearing, such as your vision. And at that point, you are ready to either fight or flight. Do I need to prepare myself for something that I need to respond to, or do I need to take off? When people are afraid, it can override their cognitive abilities. <laughs> so they're not really thinking through things. They're reacting an emotional place, a fear-based place, that amygdala place. And so their fear can be quelled somewhat by listening to someone who will say, this is, what, this is the solution. This is what we all need to do. It's strange now that what the media does is play up those 
fears of the danger of something happening to me or someone I love. And those fears are really played up in the media through the sensationalized stories that will leave the newscast. The point is that the news media preferentially feeds us negative stories because that's what our minds pay attention to. And there's a very good reason for that. Every second of every day, our senses bring in way too much data that we can possibly process in our brains. And because nothing is more important to us than survival, the first stop of all of that data is an ancient sliver of the temporal lobe called the amygdala. Now, the amygdala is our early warning detector, our danger detector. It sorts and scours through all of the information, looking for anything in the environment that might harm us. So given a dozen news stories, we will preferentially look at the negative news. And that old newspaper saying, bleeds it leads, is very true. So if we heard a newscast about a school shooting, and we remember Columbine, and we remember Virginia Tech, and we can tick off a number of things that happen over a 10-year span or longer, we overestimate the likelihood that that will occur. children at a, at, a, at a very early age start picking up on their own parents' biases. And that's where you start seeing, oh, that group's not okay. You can talk about the, that through the lens of in-groups and out-groups as well. Through middle school, on into high school, there are cliques, of course. And when you're not a member of the clique, your, your clique is your in-group. The rival cliques are anyone that you're not a part of. They're going to be the out-group. When we look at bullying, it's not always just physical bullying. It's the emotional torment and the teasing. And often that can have a longer impact on, a, on a, an adult, not only the adolescent, but it can go on way into adulthood, the impact of being ostracized and being left out. And there is a fear for many people of not belonging, and it can be traced back to that. People with a very strong fear in that sense, they'll, they'll do all kinds of things in order to belong. You could have someone with a fear of rejection where legitimately it does seem irrational. That maybe there's one person, you know, their father along the way, who nothing was good enough and rejected them. It's amazing how one experience can plant the seeds for a fear to continue. I've tried my best to give you a good life. Some 
outside of all of thy kind, a handful of our people with their lives have made our lives impossible. Or, in old language, a couple thousand years ago, disciples, those who are trying to prepare themselves for entry into the evolutionary level above human, synonymous with the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. Your only chance to evacuate is to leave with us. Nowadays, increasingly, we understand where danger comes from, we know where disease comes from, uh, we don't know exactly, but approximately. Um, we, we know how to control our, our world to an increasing extent. I think an antivirus program for helping people to overcome their fears and think critically is simply awareness. So much like you have an antivirus program on your computer, it detects uh, threats. And I think there's no way around a person just growing in their awareness, becoming more aware of their stereotypical behaviors. And that's often a way that behaviors such as fears get unlearned. You gotta substitute, they have to be taught another way. Until we're given something else to substitute it, we're gonna do the thing we know how to do. So that is the end of uh, the first segment. We're going to go into the second one. Um, the second one is a TED Talk. And it is along the lines of the same thing. Um, what horror films teach us about ourselves and being human beings. I thought this topic was something that was pretty, pretty interesting, and this is about 21 minutes long, so, um, People with ADHD. shouldn't be too long, um, let's see here, horror films are a heck of a lot more profound than you think. They actually help us appreciate ourselves and each other. The trick? They play with your brain, literally. <laughs> Dr. Steve Schultzman is an assistant professor of psychiatrics at Harvard Medical School and a psychiatrics at uh Massachusetts General Hospital he majored in English and biology at Stanford University and under teaching high school and after teaching high school English and science attended Dartmouth and Brown University Medical School Schultzman has authored more than 40 academic publications he has helped design video games that teach adolescents about neurobiology and has collaborated at King's College London to a in London to assess attitude regulating, uh, agu- 
to assess attitude regulating uh, psychiatrics among medical educators and curriculum. He teached the he teaches the subject at Harvard and is the author of the Zombie Auto Species. Additionally, sheltering blogs for the Huffington Post and Psychology Today and has written articles for the New York Times, Sunday Magazine, Psychology Today, the Southwest Airline Magazine, NBC.com, CNN.com, ABC.com, and uh, Newsweek and The Guardian, which is pretty good. One one writer to another. Last bit says, this talk was given at a TED Talk event using the TED Conference platform, but independently organized by a local community, which is pretty darn sweet. And with that being said, let's give a listen to Mr. Mr. Schultzman. After this ad. It's just me 
and, and my trusty dog, Patches, who is this mongrel, this white mongrel animal whose white fur kind of blended seamlessly with the white shag carpet. My parents were out for the evening. My sister is having a sleepover at someone's house. And I've eaten all but the last piece of one of those God-given Tostino frozen pizzas. Those are like the greatest gift ever to frozen food. And I'm clutching in one of those 70s plastic translucent cups, which you've seen, which you probably still have in your basement, I'm clutching a glass of Dr. Pepper, and there's a vampire at the window. So I tell you what, you know what I did? I got up, and I ran up the stairs, and I turned on every light in the house. Every light went on, and, and I didn't care that I had little bits of pizza crumbs stuck to my flannel shirt, and I didn't care that my dog was running after me going, what's going on, Steve? What's all the fuss? I didn't care that I was pretty sure I had knocked over that Dr. Pepper thing down below. None of that mattered to me. What mattered was that there was a vampire at the window in, in the basement, so I had to do something. I had to take action. My dad was a doctor, so I went into the bathroom, and I found all these tongue compressors, and, and then I found these rubber bands, and I made them into crosses. I made like 12 crosses out of rubber bands. I, really, I did this. But you know what the funniest part of all this is? I'm Jewish. I, I, I never, I'd never made a cross in my life, you know? But I knew the rules. <laughs> there was a vampire in the basement, and, and I wasn't taking any chances. So, so that vampire, those of you who may have recognized him, that was from the made-for-TV movie, Salem's Lot. That was on network television. I don't know how they got that one passed. Network television. If you talk to people from my generation and you say, what was the scariest movie you've ever seen? They'll go through the canon. They'll say the Amityville Horror, the Exorcist, the Omen. And then you say, you ever see Salem's Lot? And their eyes will roll wide and look at this big smile like, oh, my God, yeah, that movie scared me to death. Directed by the same guy who directed the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. But, but I will bet you tickets to a thousand horror conventions that if they tell you their story about Salem's Lot, it'll be a lot like the story I just told you. It might not involve Tostino's frozen pizza. It might involve like a bag of Doritos instead. It might involve a sleepover, but nobody sleeps over, right? Everyone's up all night in this delightful terror after having seen the show. And this is what horror does. Horror grabs you when you're 11 years old, which, by the way, is the average age when people see their first horror film. It's 11, so there's something transgressive about horror. It grabs you, and it makes some of the most loyal fans on the planet. Even bad horror films make money. But don't get me wrong, there are plenty of really, really good horror films. Films that are celebrated by the critics and the fans alike. Let's wander through them. Shining. Who has not had nightmares about those twins in the hallway? That little kid with his red rum thing and the bike and the elevator, shiny. There's Rosemary's Baby, 1968. I teach this film to Harvard undergraduates. They've grown up with YouTube, right? They need the story to begin, middle, and end by three minutes, and they sit through two-plus hours of Rosemary's descent into literally hell. And they have this huge smile on their face, and they say, why don't we see movies like this anymore? It Follows, a movie that came out very recently. If you want to see a terrifying depiction of what it means to come of age in this society, this is your movie. There's this one, which we're going to come back to, Nightmare on Elm Street. A generation of people grew up on this movie, including me. And there's Dawn of the Freaking Dead. If, 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 you, if you see one zombie film, this is the one you want to see. 1978, this movie's made. What did Romero show us with this movie? He showed us that you don't need... 
contagion or, or radiation or the rage virus to become a zombie. What you need is a shopping mall. That's it. That's what makes the change. These are the movies that I love. I am a horror fan. I have always loved horror. These movies scare me to death. But I will go back again and again with a big smile on my face, and I'll come out with an even bigger smile on my face. But there's a bit of a problem for me here. Because you know what? I'm also a child psychiatrist. I mean, I, I, I have a bona fide MD, and I take care of children for a living. And they're not just the kids I'm raising, but the kids whose parents actually pay me, you know, to see them. And, and the, if you bring your kid to see a doctor, you do what everybody does nowadays. You Google their name, right? And in addition to being a child psychiatrist, I've written horror novels. I've written a couple of novels. I've written horror short stories. I've been involved in horror movies and video games. We even have a project right now where we're using virtual reality to create a wrap-around horror experience. So if you Google me and you say, this is the person I'm going to take my child to to help, you might get that image, okay? That's actually an image from, from one of the books I wrote. And you know what happens? The kids, they say, yeah, it's a guy I want to see. But... <laughs> The parents, they don't do that. The parents say, uh, I don't know. So if you're a child psychiatrist and you like horror, that Harvard name can only get you so far. Okay? <laughs> but I think because I'm a psychiatrist, I'm not so bothered by this. I'm actually sort of fascinated by my love of the macabre. I'm wondering, what is it about horror that we find so attractive, that those of us who are fans find so about ourselves? Is there something sneakily provocative about it? Why, when I was 13 years old, scary movies, mm. did my grandma Bobby give me that book? My sweet grandma Bobby for Hanukkah gives me this mm. book. I asked for this book. That's why. I wanted to learn mm. about this genre that I was so fascinated by. Is there something kind of sneakily profound buried in all the gore? I'm going to say yes. That's the case I'm going to make for you today. I'm going to say that horror makes us ask questions that we are very uncomfortable asking in any other setting, except in the campy displacement of horror and boys. And because of that, we can get to know ourselves better. We can tolerate our foibles better, and we can learn to love each other better. So let me give you some examples. I told you we are going to come back to this guy. That's Freddy Krueger from Nightmare on Elm Street. Um, so I apologize for the spoiler alerts here. If you haven't seen this movie... And most people have seen this movie many times, or they're never going to see this movie. There's not a lot of in-between on, on that one. But if you haven't seen it, I'm going to spoil a little bit of it. Freddy is a demon. Okay, Now, those, those claws he has, those are like razor blades that he's fastened to these gloves. And he haunts teenagers in their dreams. So, so he, he gets into their dreams, and these kids go to sleep, and he slashes them in their dreams. And then they wake up, and they're still bleeding. In fact, if he catches you in your dream, you could bleed to death in real life. So what do the teenagers do? They refuse to go to sleep. Does that sound familiar to anybody? So the teenagers refuse to go to sleep in this town. And Freddy is a monster. He's a demon. And you hate Freddy for most of the movie. But around three-quarters into the movie, you learn Freddy's backstory. Freddy wasn't always a demon. Freddy was once a human being. He was a living, breathing soul, just like you and me. And, and he committed unthinkable acts in the very town that he now haunts. And he got caught. He got tried, and he's released on a technicality. That's the words of the movie. So the town folk, before their kids are grown up, they take justice into their own hands, and they capture Freddy, and rather than giving him back to the authorities, they burn him alive. 
That's why his face looks like this. You don't see any of this in the movie. That's all the backstory. So now you've got a problem. I mean, Freddy's a monster. He's got to go. He's killing children in their dreams. Children who didn't, they weren't even part of this mob justice thing, right? They're not responsible. And nevertheless, no one deserves to be burned alive. Everybody who went to that movie believed in due process. Everybody in the movie believes in due process. The whole movie's about due process, believe it or not. And yet, Freddy gets burned alive. So even if you don't believe in due process, somebody really deserved that kind of ending. And before you know it, just like that, this trifling film, this throwaway, this thing that you rented, probably because that face caught your attention, now you're thrust into this really interesting discussion of the ragged world of mob justice. We can ask those questions much more easily. I told you that that vampire was a brother, and I told you that we let that vampire into the house. So another spoiler alert here, I gotta tell you a little bit about Salem's Lot. Two brothers on their way home, sun's going down. They know they're not supposed to get home after sun goes down, and they know they're gonna be late. So there is, of course, an obligatory shortcut through the woods. Every horror film has a shortcut through the woods, right? <laughs> That's the way it works. So the big brother says to the little brother, come on, dad's going to kill us if we don't get home on time. Let's take the shortcut through the woods. The little brother says, dad's going to be really mad if we go through the woods. And the big brother says, kind of accurately, dad will never know that we went through the woods. So let's just go. So the little brother's size follows the big brother because he's stronger. He can move all the brambles out of the way. And when he pops out, literally into his backyard, out of where the woods end, he notices that his brother's not with him. He's lost his brother in the woods. So he doesn't think anything rotten's happened. He's just scared. So he goes inside and he says to his parents, look, I came home through the woods and, and I lost my little brother and I don't know where he is and his parents are mad. So they send him upstairs onto that second story. And they go out to look for him. That's when that vampire shows up, who used to be his brother. In fact, that's why his brother didn't make it home. His brother got attacked by the vampire. When I was watching this movie, I wasn't thinking, don't let him in. I was thinking, he will definitely let him in because it's his brother. Okay, And that blood bond of brotherhood transcends the fact that his brother is now a vampire. Now, this may seem really silly and trite to you, except take away the word vampire and insert something new. I will not let my brother at the dinner table because he is a criminal. Or I will not let my brother at the dinner table because he's an addict. Or I won't have dinner with my brother because he didn't vote for the same guy I voted for. And if ever there were a timely debate that we can handle better in that campy displacement of horror, it happens in movies like this. And you might wonder, did I really get that when I was 11? Yeah, not because I'm anything special. I work with 11-year-olds for a living, and I can tell you they sense intuitively there's a profound question on the table. They get it much better than adults. You know, the movie that did this best, Night of the Living Dead, 1968. $100,000 budget, not even copyright. I know George really well, George Romero, the guy who made this movie. He didn't know he'd be a filmmaker. He was, and I'm not making this up, the chief cameraman for Mr. Rogers when he made this film. So he chips in some of his own money. He gets his buddies to make this movie, and it takes movie world by storm, and in one fell swoop, it attacks racism, it attacks sexism, it attacks a war that we as a nation couldn't seem to extract ourselves from. It asks us what we do in a postmodern world when science actually fails us, when we can't get the answers we need from science, and most importantly, it asks us what we do when fear overpowers our ability to be reasonable and how we can become violent. All that from a 
$1,000 non-copyrighted, he didn't know he'd be a filmmaker, so he never copyrighted, non-copyrighted movie. That's a pretty impressive stack if you think about it. So how, how does it do that? Let's move over to the brain, the, the organ I'm actually supposed to know something about, okay? <laughs> Let's talk for a second about the tricks our brain play so that we can get to these fairly profound conclusions from horror films. And we do that through clowns. Now, I'm, we don't really do that through clowns, but I showed you a picture of a clown here so you could engage in the first thing I want to talk about, a metacognition. So a metacognition means thinking about what you're thinking about. And in studies of people who like horror films, there's two really important findings. The first one is that they are frightened. So you know this by measuring things like skin conductance. You can see that people are sweating, respiratory rate, heartbeat. You know that you at least have a fight or flight response. And as those folks come out of the movie, you sort of say, okay, you had a fight or flight response. You had, you did, you did. What did you think of the movie? And the first person at the fight or flight response says, never again, never again. You say, okay, take it your time. But somebody else comes out and says, yeah, yeah, I was, I was really scared. That was really was really good. You say, well, what made it good? I stop and you say, well, that's a good question. I have to think about what made it good. I have to think about what I'm thinking. So clowns are the perfect example of that. Many people, even before all the nonsense that happened this fall, are afraid of clowns. <laughs> Many people don't like clowns. Now, but why don't we like clowns? That's a metacognitive exercise. So let's just do a little, little experiment here, a little thought experiment. Clown at the circus or at a birthday party or at a rodeo, that's okay, right? I mean, you might not like clowns, but you understand that's where he belongs. Put a clown in your backyard holding a meat cleaver at 11.30 at night and staring? That's not right, right? That's a moment that doesn't fit the pattern. That's a metacognitive moment where you're saying, I know where clowns belong and it's not there, okay? That actually has to do with the second concept I want to talk about, and that's the concept of pattern recognition. You recognize the pattern where a clown ought to be. So, another example. That's a pug. Everybody does that when they say that photo. Oh. So if you ask a two-year-old, what is that? What is that? She'll say, that's a doggy. And you'll say, why is that a doggy? And she talks to another little fuzzy, but she talks to mine, and she says, you say, well, how is a doggy different from a kitty? She's not going to say, well, kitties have retractable claws and those funky pupils. <laughs> She'll just say, kitties look like kitties and doggies look like doggies. And can I go now? <laughs> and you know what? She's right. She recognizes the pattern in the doggy. Pattern recognition sets in at a very young age. It's an adaptive response. It allows us to see when things are just slightly off. Like, hey, guard, to be aware. You know that things just aren't quite right. So we're going to do a little experiment with this very cute pug. Don't, don't worry, I'm not going to hurt him, I promise. We're just going to tweak this pug just a little bit. There. Okay? Now, you all laughed, right? You laughed because you recognized, before you understood why, the patterns here. Those are cat eyes on a pug. And you didn't say, I am laughing because those are kitty cat eyes on a pug's face. Your brain registered it is not quite fitting in, even before you knew why. You had to kick it north to, to that prefrontal cortex we heard about earlier in order for it to make sense. But you know what happens then? When we have that cognitive dissonance of two patterns that get shoved together and we feel a little bit frightened and we step away, you wonder, is that the source of prejudice? 
that a source of racism? You know, something that looks really similar to you, but it's a little bit different? Is that our neurobiological substrate? One of the worst things we can do as humans? These are the questions that Ford asked in ways that we cannot ask directly. We're a very funny species. We don't like difficult questions unless somebody poses it in this place for you. And horror films gives that opportunity. It's a very subtle thing in horror. You might not know that. Horror is subtle, except it's not. You guys remember this film? My goodness. This movie, that's Alien. That's Ridley Scott's Alien. The tagline for this movie is, in space, nobody can hear you scream. And I, I tell you what, when I watched this movie, people heard me scream. Like, the whole neighborhood heard me scream. Everybody up and down. When that thing busted out of that guy's gut, it, it was like, you know, to quote the sequel to Alien, Aliens, it was game over, man. Game game over. God, Bill Paxton just passed away. God, rest his soul. But I don't remember being terrified. I remember laughing as I was screaming game over. And I remember laughing with my buddies because I didn't see Alien in the theater. I rented it. I was 17 years old then. My parents were not home. You guys are going to think I grew up with no one watching me ever. It was my parents weren't home. My sister wasn't there. I had all my friends over, and mom, dad, who are in the audience tonight, uh, forgive me, we had procured some 3.2% alcohol beer, which was legal at the time in Kansas if you were 18. And in that funky kind of logic that adolescents like to engage in, I was not 18. But I figured because I had friends who were 18 were in the same class, I could drink of this beer. So we watched this movie and laughed and screamed in delight. And this is what horror does for you. It doesn't make you drink. That's not what I'm saying. It creates community creates connection, and that's the third part. It makes you think, it makes you recognize patterns, but it brings us together. And that's like gold to our social brains. We're wired to connect with each other, and we need ways to do that. H have you ever been to a horror film in the theater? Because if you haven't, you should. They play so much better in the theater. And it's the only movie setting where it is not only permissible, it is expected to yell to scream, to say, I can't watch, to shout instructions to the guy on the screen, to say, what are you doing? Don't split up. And if you if you do split up, there's this dark, creepy tunnel that you just discovered. Don't go down there. And if you do go down there, why in God's name are you taking a match and not the flashlight that you had in your truck? This is what happens in horror. That happened in The Conjuring, if anybody saw it. That very scene and everybody in the theater starts laughing. We love that moment. We know that the filmmaker loved the idea of the match and couldn't give it up. That connection, horror is so derivative that you see every horror film and every other horror film, and you feel immediately like you're part of the club. Look, horror is a mirror, okay? It's a distorted mirror by, by definition. It's not what we think we're seeing when we look at it. And if it were super pristine, I don't think we could tolerate it because we've got some ugly sides to us. But if we move it into this placement, we can ask some pretty provocative questions about ourselves we can answer them, learn to tolerate our vulnerabilities, our foibles, actually even learn to love ourselves more. That mirror can be a present to us. So go out and see the next horror film. Thanks for coming. That was incredible. <laughs> that was really, really profound and incredible. Um, I got a lot, of, a lot out, out of that. Or I got a lot out of that. <laughs> um... And I hope you did too. Uh, if you decided to stay with me up until this point, thank you so much for that. Um, I think I'm going to end it there. And uh, I will be back with another episode in a few days, probably sometime tomorrow. 
um, everything goes right, um, I'll be excited to drop another episode. And as, as added, I will also um, put these resources that I've, I've found and, and cite everything um, on my Facebook page, Frequency Bay. And uh, other than that, that's pretty much all I got. Uh, looks, look, it's looking like we are got a couple more weeks of this month left. About two. Yeah, we're about halfway through this month. Um, so uh, yeah, it'll be the end of the year before we know it. Gosh, it's gonna be what um, Halloween, then Black Friday, then Thanksgiving, then. Halloween, the Thanksgiving, the Black Friday, and then uh, Christmas, and next thing you know, we'll be looking at 2022. Um, so I hope you guys are preparing, preparing for uh, the next phase of uh, next year, because it'll be here before we know it. But uh, thank you so much for listening. Uh, Madam Butterfly out.